Now, my friends, in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, the author, or our instructor, if I may say it that way, has, has uh, asked and answered a question here which does not directly pertain to the Apostles' Creed. You know how we've been working through that, right? That he, was, that he, he, was, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But it's at this point, and you know, again, you can, you can just imagine, can't you, that the instructor is standing there or, or sitting, and the, the pupils sitting there with him. And, and one of the pupils, one of the more uh, observant, reflective pupils, one of the students, he suddenly has a question. And you might say, his hand goes up. And he asks this question that we have in 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Now, how many of you thought of that question as we pondered the for the last four Lord's Days, his suffering, his, 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 uh, his being crucified, his taking the curse, and his, being, uh, and his dying and being buried? And now this student, as it were, suddenly objects, suddenly has a question. Something's not quite clear to him. Wait a minute. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? You might say that this, this, uh, this student is, is thinking about what the instructor has taught. And I'll say more about that when I get to the first question. Let me read the answer now. The answer is, our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. And so, my friends, we have set before us then this, this topic of death. Death. With all its unpleasantness and all its uh, anxiety and fear that is associated with death. We experienced death in our own congregation, haven't we, in the past uh, months. And I certainly saw death uh, firsthand when I was uh, preaching regularly at the, uh, the home for the elderly in Grand Rapids. And when I sat at their deathbeds, with, the, with the, the families. And it's a solemn thing and a sad thing, isn't it? One man who I knew uh, grew so weary of his life, he was on dialysis. And he just stopped going to dialysis. He just said, I'm done with it. I'm not going anymore. And within a week, he was gone, of course. And it raises so many issues, doesn't it? When we think about death. But again, when we think about all the, the sadness and the, and the unpleasantness of death, of course, I just lost my own father some months back. Actually, I'm told it was six months ago now. I can hardly believe it. So we face that head on, and, and you've all undoubtedly had the experience also. Then this question that, again, our student raises to the instructor has all the more meaning, doesn't it? All the more feeling behind it, all the more emotion, because we all go back to those moments when we sat by the bedside of our loved one or when we went to that funeral. If Christ died for us, then why do we still need to die? And it's a very good question, my friends. It's a very good question. If you go back over the last four weeks of what we considered, right, we, we saw that Jesus suffered in our place, the innocent for the guilty. We saw, second of all, that he suffered before Pontius Pilate, that the most innocent man who ever walked this earth 
was sentenced guilty by Pontius Pilate in Pilate's court, that we might be pronounced not guilty, that we might be justified. We saw that Jesus was nailed to a cross as a sign and as a mark that he took the curse of God in our place. We deserve the curse, but he was nailed to a cross to testify to the world that he's taken the curse off from his people. We saw most recently that Jesus died as the stated penalty of the covenant of works. That the covenant of works which God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden said that in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And that for that reason, Jesus underwent the terms of the covenant of works and was nailed to a cross and took the death that we deserved, the innocent in the place of the guilty. The message is always the same, isn't it, these last four weeks? The innocent in the place of the guilty. Well, then, this comes the question. If the law has nothing against us anymore, if God's justice is satisfied with the death of Christ, and certainly it is, then what purpose does death serve in our life? Why do we still die then? To our physical eyes, it seems as though nothing has really changed. That Christ came, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was died, he was crucified, he was buried. And nothing much has changed. We still die. You can kind of see the wheels turning in the, in the mind of this student as he thinks, wait a minute. Why death? We still die. Everybody dies. And yet we say, we say it so many times that Jesus died in our place. And he took the punishment that we deserved. Well, this is one of the reasons we love our catechism, my friends, don't we? Is it has this personal side to it, right? It's not just a logic-chopping uh, uh, document. It certainly does that in place, and that's good. But here's this very personal thing, isn't it? Why do we still die if Jesus took our place? Well, then we move to the answer. Now, my friends, I, I never, I just said how much we appreciate the catechism. I do wish, though, this is one answer that it could be just slightly rewritten. Because I wish that the answer would make it more clear. The, the question is, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? And I, I, here I wish that the answer would say, we do not need to die. That needs to be unequivocally and clearly stated right from the start. That believers do not need to die. Christ has died in their place. The curse has been removed. Now our catechism does say that, maybe not quite as clearly as we would like, but it says our death is not a payment for our sins. And that must be stated so clearly, so unequivocally, right from the beginning. That our death, my friends, has nothing to do with the fact that we sinned against God and we are guilty against him. That penalty has been entirely paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And again, I, I state that with passion and with vigor, my friends, that, that we must stand strong, and our catechism certainly does. Our death is not a payment for our sins. Otherwise, we would take away from what Christ has done in our place. So there, there, then the catechism, there must be some other reason because God still has seen it fit in his providence that we all die. And we all will die. Well, the catechism then goes on. But only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. 
So the Catechism says, it is a death to our sinful nature, that old man that still plagues us, even after we've been converted by God, even after we've gone and been given that new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit, there still remains that enemy within. Now, he's not, he doesn't rule there, as he did previous to our conversion, but still he's there. But now the Catechism says that that old man comes to an end. He dies when we die. And then the glorious truth and an entering or an entrance into eternal life. Our death is an entrance into eternal life. Well, my friends, that teaches us very clearly that there is no comparison whatsoever between the death of an unbeliever and the death of a believer. And you could say, preacher, what do you mean? They, they, everybody dies the same. No. You're just looking with your eyes, my friends. You have to accept the teaching of Scripture on this. And look with the eyes of faith. Look with the, through the teaching that God gives us. And God teaches us tonight that there is no comparison whatsoever between the death of an unbeliever and the death of a believer. Now, I want to continue then to consider the biblical teaching as we have it regarding eternal life. We, we have been taught by the Catechism that our death is an entrance or an entering into eternal life. What does the scripture teach us about eternal life? This is what I'd like to consider with you this evening, my friends. And so I have these, these points. I put all the scriptures on the outline there. We can just read them together. But as we, as we begin to understand what this is in eternal life, and I think that I can, I can start right from the beginning, my friends, by, by making it clear that eternal life in the Bible does not just re refer to life that carries on and never ends. It's much fuller and richer and deeper than that. And I think that you will see how, how beautifully the, the language of our catechism is reflected in, uh, I'm sorry, how the language of our catechism reflects the teaching of the word of God as it pertains to eternal life. Well, let's consider this then. And in the first place, uh, eternal life is something that originates in God himself. It is something that begins in God. And by the way, you'll notice that all these texts come from the Gospel of John. Or I should say some, some book that John wrote, either the Gospel or the letters of John. John is the one who especially is given by God to teach us this idea of eternal life. So in the first place then, from John 5, verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now my friends, there you see that life is something that originates in God and that God has given this life to his Son. Jesus reflects that teaching in John 14, the next verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And now we are taught that John understands the idea of salvation, being saved, and, the, and the, the figure or the picture that he gives us of that is the idea of life. Now, of course, that's a picture that we can quickly and easily relate to, right? Because we know what it means to live. It's very difficult to define, by the way, physical life. But I think in a general way, we can understand what it means to live. And we certainly are familiar with death. And John loves to represent the idea of salvation in the terms of eternal life. Now, the Father has life in himself. He has given to the Son 
life. And now Jesus says, I am, in the preaching of the kingdom of God, he says, I am life. In John 14, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. So now we can carry this one step further. That in, in, as John teaches us about salvation, the Father has life in himself. The Father has given this life to his Son. And now the Son gives this life to his people. To those whom he saves. So that salvation is eternal life. It is receiving the gift of eternal life. So it originates in God. Now, let's carry on. The teaching then with the second place, that eternal life is something that is central to Jesus' mission. That Jesus came to this world and that his mission to this world has everything to do with eternal life. In John 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There you see that Jesus identifies his mission with bringing life and bringing it in abundance. So that is the teaching then that Jesus' mission is centered on this idea of eternal life. Now, in the third place, we can see from Scripture, from John's teaching, that eternal life is something future. Now, if you just jump ahead to the second, uh, the next one there, you can see that eternal life is something that is also present. But first, let's consider this future. So we have texts such as John 4, verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So he is gathering fruit. The one who is reaping, the one who is living a life for God, is, is uh, and elsewhere, you know, Jesus will say that he's laying up treasure in heaven. He's gathering fruit for life eternal. In other words, life eternal in the future. That will come in the future. The next text I gave you there is John 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Again, the same idea, right? That by working, Christians lay up a treasure in heaven. They lay up a fruit for life eternal. And in this verse, they have food which endures to eternal life. Something future. And finally there in John 12 and verse 25, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Again, really the same idea that when we deny ourselves and when we give ourselves to the service of Christ, even to the point of, of relatively speaking, hating our life, right? Not that we actually positively hate our life, but that in comparison to our love for Christ, we reject our own agenda and our own priorities and our own goals. And we give ourselves to the service of Christ. And Jesus says, he who loves his life like that will keep it to life eternal. Something future. But now, my friends, we come to this truth, which maybe is a truth that we're not so uh, familiar with. A truth that maybe is not so clear to us. A truth that is not often uh, understood so well. That eternal life is something present. Again, we tend to think of eternal life as something that will come in glory after God's people die. That then they will have eternal life. But actually, my friends, it is more common in Scripture for, to refer to eternal life as something that is a present enjoyment of believers. It is something that they have now. Let's consider these texts. John 3, verse 36. 
He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Notice the present tense of that verb. He has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now that's a striking teaching, my friends. That eternal life, as it will be in, e in eternity, after we die, after we enter into glory, that in some sense, says Jesus, the future becomes a present reality in the life of God's children. And that they already begin to enjoy eternal life in the present state. John 20, the next verse, but these have been written. By the way, this is the verse that comes at the very end of John's gospel. So that these here is all the account of Jesus' life and ministry that John gives. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There you see very clearly that life is joined to believing. That when a person comes to believe, when he comes to have faith in Christ, he immediately, not that he now has the hope of eternal life to come in the future. Now that's true, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is teaching here is that you may have life in his name. You have it as a present reality, as a present experience in your life. That the minute, the second a person believes in Christ, he is joined to Christ and comes to enjoy as a present reality, eternal life. First John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Now I put this text in there, my friends, because John often represents the idea of salvation as a passing out of the realm of death into a realm of life. You might say that here is a realm that is ruled by death. Death is the tyrant in this realm. But when a person believes in Christ, he leaves that realm. He is transferred out of that locality, as it were, and he comes into a new realm, a new place. And it's a place that is ruled by life. And we know, of course, that that is this eternal life that comes to a believer as a present reality. And 1 John 5, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Notice the, the article there, the. That even sounds a bit awkward in our English, doesn't it? He who has the Son has the life. But it's important. It's an important way that our translators have captured the idea that this is not just the idea that they have life, that their heart is pumping and their brain is working and they, they stand on their feet. No, it's the life. It is eternal life that is a gift from God. And it is intimately joined to Jesus Christ. If you're not joined to Christ, you do not have life. Oh yes, your heart may be pumping and your brain may be performing all its natural functions. But in the biblical sense, you don't have life unless you are joined to Christ. He who has the Son has the life. Well, we continue to this next one. Eternal life is something that brings us into union with God himself. My friends, here now we come into the, 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 the realm of the mysterious. And you know, uh, here you see something of a difference in the biblical writers. You know, Paul is a very systematic man, right? He, 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 he's always, if this, therefore that. And 
Now, if we know this, then we, you know, he's always, he's a very logical man. He's a very systematic man, very organized. And he, he has a train of logic flowing from one to the next. That's completely not like John. John is a man who revels, who loves the mystery. And the words that he says, in one sense, are extremely simple. And yet, in another sense, there's a mystery so deep there that no human mind can plummet. And that's really where we're going now. Because John teaches us that eternal life is something that brings us into union with God himself. Now, what does that mean? You might say, Pastor, you know, practically tell me what that means. I, I'm not sure I can. It is, it is something maybe that is better experienced and felt than completely understood. But read this text with me. This is the text that we had in the scripture uh, that we read together. And by the way, so that makes sense then, right? Because in John 17, Jesus is praying to his father. And we read over and over in that prayer how many times Jesus says that they may be one as we are one. Now, what does that mean, my friends? I can't explain that to you. But I can say this, right? That it is something unspeakably wonderful. In John 17, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. And you can hear it already, can't you? What a, what a, what a deep mystery. I in them. That means Jesus in his people. And you, Father, in me, Jesus. That they may be perfected in unity. You understand, my friends, that we're, we're, we're standing before an ocean that you can never plumb so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And really, my friends, this, this, this idea here that by being brought into union with God himself brings us then into contact with the eternal life that we said previously originates in God. Eternal life is originally in God. It begins in him. But when we come into union with Christ and therefore into union with his Father, right? I in them and you in me, there happens then this union and the eternal life flows from the Father to the Son and from the Son to us so that we receive the very life of God. The life of God, my friends, in the soul of man. The life of God in my soul and in your soul. This is how John speaks about eternal life. This is how John understands salvation. This is why the old fathers, the theologians, used to call this the mystical union. Because it is such a mystery. And yet we know, my friends, and we see that also in these verses from John 17, that the, that the effect of this life of God in the soul of man is 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 something that is just captured in that one word. 
glory. John 17, 24, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Again, these are, these are deep truths, my friends, that the life of God in the soul of man brings inexpressible glory to sinners. And then I come to this last one, John 11. Now we find Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. John 11, verse 25. Jesus is at the grave of Lazarus. My friends, I want you to see the picture that is placed before us this evening. Here is the, 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 the grave of Lazarus, the sepulcher, in which this man has been laying for three days. His body has begun to rot. There is no question about Lazarus being dead. You might say that, that that grave of Lazarus preaches. And it preaches, this is the end of all men. Death almost saying, I'm still in charge here. Yes, Lazarus was a Christian. Lazarus was one known by Jesus from all eternity. But look at him now. He's rotting in the grave. And Jesus comes in John 11. And he says as he's, as he's talking to Martha... And he says to Martha, he's actually talking to, yes, Martha. And he says to her this verse, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, my friends, he's saying this in the very, in the very sight of the grave. All these people can see that grave there. I, says Jesus, am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, what does that mean? He will live even if he dies. That means, my friends, even in dying, the believer doesn't die. Even in his dying, he lives. Everyone, says Jesus, who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha, even though the grave of Lazarus is right here? It's right there. And if we opened up that grave, his stinking, rotting body would be visible to us all. And Jesus now calls for the faith of the people standing before him with the grave of Lazarus in full view. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that every believer, even when they die, they live. And then, of course, you know the dramatic miracle when Jesus punctuates his teaching with a miracle and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of that grave. And death, the great enemy, is defeated and conquered. That is astonishing teaching, isn't it? That even if he dies, he will live. Jesus is the death of death. My friends, I come to my first point of application here. Believers do not die. And here, I know what we're going to object. Oh, that's not true. They do die. No, my friends. Biblically speaking, believers do not die. They have the life of God within them. Children, you can think about that as, as, a, as a kind of fire, as a candle, as it were, that is burning in the soul of every Christian. The life of God in the soul of man can never be extinguished. And in biblical terms, that's life. That's life. 
Yes, there will come a time in your life when your heartbeat will slow until finally it stops. When the brain waves will cease to flash. And when your body will, will, will shut down, as it were. But it never extinguishes the life of God in the soul of man. It never can do that. And that's why our catechism says that the death of a believer, it's certainly not a payment for our sins, but it is an entrance into eternal life. My friends, would it be, would it be right this evening to think about death? And I, I thought about this myself. That death in, its, in, in itself is a kind of birth. I wonder if we, can, if we can think of it that way. That when we think about our physical birth into this world, certainly not a pleasant experience, but into this world we came and we took our first breath. And in some respects, I wonder that the scripture doesn't lead us to believe that our death is a kind of birth into eternal life. Not a pleasant experience. And in no way, my friends, can we stand here tonight and say that death is a pleasant experience. It is the last enemy. It is what we all must face. It is not pleasant. But if we can think of it as a kind of birth into eternal life, as our catechism is teaching us, and as Christ himself would have us to understand that the eternal life is already a reality in our experience, that when we come to that last hour of our life, that we can face it without fear. Yes, it's an enemy. Yes, it's dreadful. Yes, it is dark. But we can face it in the light of this truth, that the life of God is within us. I am joined to Christ by a true faith. And God the Father has given life to his Son. And the Son of God has said, because I live, you shall live also. My second point of application was the eyes of faith. Because, my friends, I want to take you back to Psalm 88 this evening. You remember how dark that psalm was that we read. Where the man who certainly loved God, who certainly cried out to God for help, and, for, and, and he cried out to God in faith, I think we must believe that. And yet, uh, God had not revealed to him the truth of eternal life. But my friends, isn't this a preaching for Heman? For Heman this evening in Psalm 88. Oh, wouldn't you love to be the one to explain to him that you can have eternal life and you have it already now. And that Heman, when you said, when you said in Psalm 88, Heman said, I, O oh Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your life, your face from me? Heman, when he cried out that prayer, my friends, in faith to God, already received from God eternal life. Now, he, he didn't know it. But we know it, my friends. And when we stand here today, on our side of God's revelation, knowing what we know about eternal life coming from God to us through Christ, then we can stand in hope, even in the face of death, even when we experience the terrors that grip the soul of Heman. We have a truth 
that stands us in such good set. We can meet death by saying, my Savior has met death and has put it to death. My Savior conquered death. Death has no power over my King and over my Lord. I know, my friends, we think sometimes about how will we react when we receive the news that our diagnosis is terminal? How will you react when you receive that news, if you, if you have such news? I hope, my friends, in that hour, that you're able to take hold of this truth of eternal life, the life of God in the soul of man, and that it would give you a, such a comfort and such a, a rock to stand on, that even that news could not unsettle you. One more thing, my friends, that I have to say this evening as a pastor and as a preacher of the gospel, that this is not good news for everyone. And I have to say this evening, my friends, and I have to ask you again, as I asked you this morning, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And if you know this evening that you are not a Christian, then this is very dreadful news. Because as I said, the death of a believer is in no respect similar to the death of an unbeliever. Because the death of an unbeliever is a satisfaction for his sin. I ask you this evening, what will you do, my dear friend, if you know that you are not a Christian this evening? What will you do when you get your diagnosis? What will you do when you are called to stand before the throne of God? And you have no Savior. You do not have the life of God within you. You are not joined to Christ. And you have to make your own satisfaction to the justice of God. My friends, that will be unspeakably terrible. Because you never can make an adequate satisfaction to the justice of God for your sin. And that's why your death will be an eternal death. That's why hell is eternal, my friends. You must confront that fact this evening. And don't let another day go by until you make fast and make close your union with Christ by faith. He still calls you to believe the gospel. He still calls you to get into Christ. He still calls you, my friends, and he still makes available to you the life of God in your soul. That's still a possibility for the worst sinner. And nothing you can do, my friends, can exclude you from the grace of God in Christ. Well, my friends, we close the sermon then by rejoicing in this awesome reality that God has given us. When you pass through the waters, says God to each one of us, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Praise God, my friends, for what he's done for us in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we have come this evening before this central truth of your word that you've given to your apostle John to teach us so clearly. Here is something, Lord, that even the children amongst us can understand. And yet here is something, Lord, that the, the wisest and most learned amongst us cannot even begin to understand. Your life in our soul. Lord, I pray that as we face the realities of life and death, that we would do it with this truth in our hands. Especially, Lord, for the elderly amongst us who know that they have come to the end of their life. 
and who know that they must soon, soon stand before you. Lord, I pray that this truth would be a rock and a comfort to them that would never leave them and that would give them great courage even in the face of this last enemy. And Lord, if there are those who are as Heman, who write Psalm 88 and who see nothing but darkness and despair in their life and who live in anxiety and fear of that final moment, Lord, I pray that the light would shine into their hearts. That even what Martha and Mary had to learn as they stood before the grave of Lazarus, that they would also hear the glad sound of the gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Lord, I pray that you would bind these truths upon us and grant that we might live as those who have the life of God within us, that we would be live a life of holiness, a life that brings glory and honor to your name, and a life lived in hope of the coming glory, which I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, neither hath it even entered into the heart of man to conceive the glory that you have for those who love you, and for those who have that life burning within them. Lord, please bless and keep us then, and bless us this evening, and glorify your grace in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn now to number 512 in the red hymnal. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting, is gone forever. We'll sing the five verses of number 512 in the red hymnal.
Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.